want to try to take my time talking today because it feels appropriate to the subject to kind of um, go deep and slow. So um, Danielle, as the new executive director, has us really um, thinking about our talks ahead of time. So it was in the middle of December that she asked me, well, what is going to be your topic for your talk? And um, you know, it was right at the heart of the height of the winter of the darkness in December. So I decided I wanted to talk about death. And I'm purposely choosing death along with the traditional way we talk about it, impermanence, on purpose, because death is such a provocative word. I, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I, I still kind of pause when I use the word someone has died, you know, when I'm outside of religious circles, as if by saying died, I, I have been crude or blunt or somehow unkind um, in, my, in my description. So there's something about the word death in our society that I think is a little bit, um, we're a little bit shy around. <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> since the time I chose this topic, it feels even more timely. Uh, in the last month, uh, we lost two um, beloved teachers. Um, Okasan, Suzuki Roshi's wife, who is the founder of our tradition, uh, died at the age, I think, of 101. And Stephen Levine died, I think, just about a week ago, a week and a half ago. And he was an incredible Buddhist teacher whose whole life was um, focused on talking about death and dying. And um, while not a traditional teacher, I think a lot of people, especially in our generation, as I look around, Okay. The sound went off. Can everybody hear me still? Jeff, can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. You know, I was about to talk, just mention that David Bowie died as well, right? And um, I don't know if any of you have seen his video. He, he did a video, his last song was basically done on his deathbed, you know, about, I think a couple of weeks before he died, and it was a very profound expression of where he was at that moment. Again, really brave. And then, um, then I, I think about it, uh, it was about a week and a half ago that another extremely revered teacher in um, Buddhism, Bernie Glassman, suffered a profound stroke, right? And is, um, you know, facing a, a life-threatening illness. So uh, winter for many of us, uh, really marks this time of, of hibernating or turning in and staying as close to home as possible if we can. And at least in traditional Northern European countries, you know, there, uh, winter is a season that is archetypally associated with death. The trees are barren, it's cold outside, light is short, food is scarce, and as we approach the end of the year, we really start to connect with this passing of time. Uh, you know, last weekend, I think part of the joy many of us had around this snowstorm, you know, is that we had this chance, an excuse to hibernate. You know, and in our society, 
I, you know, after the holidays, I know I talked to a lot of folks, and they were like struggling to come up with the energy to respond to this scheduling that we have in our modern lives that have no association with the kind of natural cycles of our body and of the earth to go slower and to do less. You know, the relentless scheduling where you have to kick right in. So the snowstorm is like a great gift for those of us who could stay home. And I also think, um, you know, the, the light that comes from the TVs and from our video screens, even that is some way where we kind of override a, a, a natural sinking in uh, and we all kind of keep stimulating ourselves. <clears throat> so uh, what I'd like to do is just, you know, to, to just nod to this ancient tradition of looking at death. And, and the cycles of life by, by choosing to talk about this um, subject today. And you know, this is not an unusual thing if you read any of the teachings of Buddhism, because the truth of impermanence, the knowing of death, is the, in the, if we keep it in the forefront of our consciousness, if we don't just look at it when it hits us, you know, it is, I think, has been for me, uh, the most motivating and inspiring tool in my life. And I was talking to Greg yesterday, and, and you know, we recognize that in a way, uh, meditation can actually, if we don't study impermanence deeply, if we don't really look at this basic truth of Buddhism that everything changes, nothing is stable, that we actually use meditation. We can come here and use meditation as actually another way to avoid that sense that everything falls apart. And last year, I, I, I went through kind of an existential crisis, and I realized that. I was actually like thinking my practice was going to save me <laughs> somehow from death, from loss. So in ancient Buddhist traditions, there is a, a long tradition of meditating on death. Practitioners in traditional societies are asked and said, go to, the, go to the burial grounds, go to the cemetery, and sit there and look at what's around you. And monks used to um, do practices that uh, feel a little strange for us of actually sitting in front of a, dis a disintegrating corpse as a way of really getting this into our consciousness. You know, and in, in, uh, in our society, uh, we really make abstract and distant death. You know, you read newspapers and there's just statistic after statistics and numbers around death. And so they become kind of abstract. And you know, Greg and I tried to make a vow to like not watch things that have violent, you know, um, images. Um, we fail. <laughs> We'd be watching like four shows, I think. But you know, what happens is we we see endless amounts of murders and mutilations and images of death, and it's just like a parade of it. And, and our response in our bodies is numbness, you know? And I think it's a very different experience for our body and mind to watch a TV show where folks get shot up and killed 
than it is to have a, a close, intimate experience with the, uh, with the reality of dying. So uh, yesterday, Danielle sent out this correspondence about Okasan's funeral. They were having an incredibly elaborate um, funeral in Japan for her death. And um, I wanted to just read a part of the description. So she wrote, uh, this was written by Linda Ruth Cutts, who was the uh, former abbess of San Francisco Zen Center and a senior teacher who knew Okasan well. Here's what she wrote about the ritual. Right after the ceremony, a number of people began to gather many of the white blossoms from the bouquets so that they could be nestled into the coffin all around Okasan. She looked so cozy with the many flowers around her face and all over her little body. The great-grandchildren, some as young as five, participated enthusiastically in this ritual and also touched her face and seemed quite settled with the ordinary activities of life and death. After the coffin left, there were many buses that took people, mostly family, to the crematorium. The facility was ready for us, and everyone went right to the room where the retort was. We all chanted while she was put into the fire. As we waited during the time of the cremation, a light lunch was served with a variety of refreshments. We waited and ate and chatted in this room, all the while being aware of what was happening in the fire. After about an hour and a half, it was announced through the loudspeaker that the Suzuki family should come to another room. There was another ceremony in which the newly revealed ashes were placed in the jade green urn, with everyone present chanting and helping. So the intimacy of being with death and meditation, it, to me, is so useful because it teaches our bodies how to meet something difficult. And what's more difficult for most of us than than getting close to and recognizing death and loss. And we, in meditation, instead of just num numbingly, you know, letting a parade of images go around us or walking past, you know, uh, a little bird laying in the, you know, in the road, we, we start to slow down and take in our experience and let it inform us. I'm actually working with a client right now who has a life-threatening illness, and it's sort of, I mean, sort of, it's incredibly humbling. So I, I feel a little bit sensitive talking about this topic, um, almost, I could say, out of respect for her. Uh, you know, I have not yet faced a life-threatening disease. Uh, I have not yet experienced what my sister, after she had a terminal diagnosis, described as this um, movement, this uh, crossing from the side of the living to the dying, and facing this you know, unbridgeable gap between the two. I have not you know, had to fear for my life. You know, as a a middle-class white woman living in Park Slope, you know, I don't have the experience of living with the constant threat of violence. I'm in a really protected world, so it feels like. And so, um, for me, it, it, I, I feel a little, sometimes a little um, shy, really, to talk about this because it's, in a sense, on one level, very theoretical for me, maybe theoretical for most of us, right? 
And so it's easy to, to make proclamations about it. And, and you know, until we face that you know, own experience of needing uh, a threat to our lives, I, I don't think we really know what that looks like or feels like. So I, I want to really name that. But um, you know, I have had every one of my immediate family members die over the last 10 years. I've had teachers die. Like everybody else, I've had many people in my life die. And, and they, you know, and I almost feel like this is an honor of them. You know, I, I feel like that, that experience, you know, that clearly are, are has some <laughs> energy that my heart just starts to vibrate when I talk about it from that place. Um, that that has been the biggest motivation for me around practice. And that's what I, I, I bow to them for. And um, this is the thing I really want to communicate today, more than anything. So the first teaching the Buddha ever made was about impermanence. And the last things he ever said, the last words he uttered was about impermanence. So in his first speech, after gaining enlightenment, he speaks about the Four Noble Truths, which is this basic orientation for our practice. He talks about how suffering arises because we ignore this truth of existence, which is everything is impermanent, everything is changing, nothing can be held on to, and there's nothing that can that really is substantial. Even though this looks substantial, it's not. And our eyes can't see it, you know, because of the way our senses are. We can't perceive that this thing is in movement, that it's arising and falling away and changing form and shape in this microscopic level at every moment, and so are we. So here's his teaching, the first uh, words he said after attaining enlightenment. <clears throat> now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering, union with what is displeasing is suffering, separation from what is pleasing is suffering, not to get one, one, one what, not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates, which are just the functions that make up a sentient being, uh, are subject to clinging that are subject to clinging because all the ways that we come together, we tend to cling, are suffering. And these are the very last words he spoke before dying. Behold, O monks, this is my last advice to you. All component things in the world are changeable. They are not lasting. Work hard to gain your own salvation. So there's a big difference between hearing that, reading it, intellectually knowing it, and actually integrating it into our lives every moment so that it becomes our way of relating to the world. And how do we learn to understand this truth in our hearts moment to moment? So, you know, so almost everyone can agree, OK, this is true, I see this. But, uh, you know, we all walk around, all of us, with the hope or the assumption that we can create a stability and a security that can be, like, secured and maintained. 
So, so we do that. We do that, we do that, we do that. You know, even though we come in here and hear these teachings every week, right? And I do too. And then um, something happens to shake us up, right? We um, lose a relationship. You know, somebody insults us or betrays us. We have some injury. We fall. We get sick. We lose capacity. We lose somebody. And then what happens is our minds and bodies start to protest frantically, you know, against this loss. And then what happens is we're thrown into this deep process. It's happened to us. It will keep happening to us. So um, one of the most famous teaching stories in Buddhism about death is the story of Kisagatami. So um, many of you have heard this story, but um, this parable, but I'm, I'm going to read it again. And maybe some of you haven't heard it. Has any of you not heard the story of Kisagatami? The master says, oh, good. <laughs> So Kisugatami came from a poor family. Um, she was the son of a wealthy farmer who loved and married her. No. <laughs> that didn't make any sense, did it? I go too fast sometimes. She, uh, in the story, she was poor, and that has relevance only because um, at some point or another, you know, as this happens in excuse me, patriarchal stories of, <laughs> of love, um, some wealthy man comes and um, falls in love with her, rescues her from poverty, and brings her to be in his home. Um, but as the story goes, the, uh, the in-laws weren't so keen about this poor, you know, this son marrying a poor woman, so they, he treated her kind of poorly. And then um, she gave birth to a son. So when she gave birth to her son, her world was transformed. You know, she, her in-laws respected her, and like many mothers, she fell deeply in love with her child. And, you know, the story would go, she lives happily after, after. but uh, that's not how life works. And one day, her son was in the woods, and a snake bit him and died, and he died. So, uh, the story goes that Kisugatami went out of her mind with grief. She wouldn't eat. She wouldn't sleep. She walked around the houses of the village with this, her dead son in her arms, wailing and crying out for help and asking somebody to save her son. And it said that her cries actually frightened the villagers, and they all turned away from her. And then finally, one person advised her to go to see the Buddha, that maybe he had something to offer her. So poor Kisugatami is carrying her dead child in her arms, you know, day in and day at night. And she finally reaches the Buddha, and she pleads with him to please help, you know, bring her son back to life. And the Buddha said, I will give you medicine to revive your child if you can bring me a grain of mustard seeds from a house where there's been no death. So with renewed hope, she walked all around the village on every door, but at every house, she learned that someone had died. So she sat down, and she found herself listening to stories after stories of sadness, the death of wives, the death of husbands, the death of uncles and aunts and animals, beloved dogs. I added that one in. <laughs> in every house, the story was different, but the grief was the same. 
just like her grief. So while she was still carrying her baby in her arms, she returned to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, you know, did you bring me a mustard seed? And she said, you know, I thought that death only happened to my child, but now I understand that it happens to everyone. And the story goes, she finally was able to come to peace. She buried her son in a, a grave, and then she went into the woods and became ordained. So, uh, you know, she's heartbroken. <clears throat> and in Buddhism, sometimes I, I think we understand or think that if we uh, loosen our attachment, somehow we won't be affected by loss, you know, that there's a confusion between uh, dis, you know, a dispassion, a, di a disattachment. And this story is beautiful because, you know, this is the human condition. We can practice the rest of our lives and hopefully, in fact, uh, practice goes against the idea of dispassion in that way, I think. You know, that we are and will be heartbroken around loss. We don't have to be a mother to understand the enormity of what it feels like to lose something or somebody we love. So what happens to Kisa Gautami happens to us. You know, we, and uh, there's lots written about this. You know, we fall into denial, we get angry, we get furious, we feel helpless, we um, try to control things, you know. Um, for two years after my sister died, poor Greg, I mean, I, I could not allow him to drive the car, you know. Every single car felt like a threat to me, and my response was to, to control, you know. My house was immaculate. I just wanted to feel like I had control over something when I didn't. My, my whole world was falling apart. So we do that. You know, and the other thing we do, you know, um, some of us, is to create a fantasy about a way that we can have, get back to a connection. Um, and I don't even know if it's a fantasy. You know, I'm really open, but I, I have been known to go to psychics, and um, I might, you know, and I, I continue to want to do that. Because even despite, you know, I don't know, because I don't know. You know, and but that longing, like I know I can feel this person again. So this is human, and yet the story points to something that the suffering of loss is caused by a belief somehow that it only happened to her. You know, like my sister who says, you, as she started to face death, she felt like she was separate, alone, away from this world where everybody is kind of merrily going on along their way, living. So it feels like a kind of an affront to our ego death. And um, yet the story points us out of a way of suffering. And this is the main point of what I want to really talk about, which is that through this process of opening up her heart, not by even her own suffering, it's like she couldn't be compassionate to her own suffering. She was so caught up in her mind that was rallying against it. But when she sat down and she listened and her heart started to settle into the pain of other people's suffering, this tenderness happened, this heart opened up, 
and she was able to feel compassion. And then not just compassion, but this is the other really important point, is she started to feel like the truth of this teaching, which is interdependence, that we are not separate, you know, that her suffering is not separate. So her going and feeling other people's pain actually allowed her to meet her own and tenderize her own heart. So that is the teaching of death. That's the important thing, that if we can soften and we can awaken compassion, and then the truth of interrelatedness comes out, and then we feel relief. And we can get some calm and peace, and we don't have to feel so frantic and anxious. And the reason I share this story and the reason I'm talking about this today is we don't have to wait until we are in that crisis, until we are all out of our minds with madness, because we kind of took as permanent, we kind of thought we were going to be able to hang on to something we couldn't hang on to. You know, what are we hanging on to now that we believe there is no way I can survive without this thing? Oh, no, this is not going away. <laughs> it will go away. Maybe you'll go away first, but something's going to happen. So, you know, death is with us every moment of every day. And to me, the whole practice, the whole question is, how do we begin to feel some acceptance of death? Acceptance not like acceptance, okay, no big deal. I'm not afraid to die, you know? You hear people say that, like, okay, good for you to say that right now. <laughs> Easy for you to say. Wait, you know? And I don't even just mean death in the big sense, D. There's so many losses. There's so much grief stuck inside of us from previous losses, from previous deaths. You know, one kind of truism as a clinical um, social worker we say is, you know, the grief that arises now connects us to all the other griefs, all the other ungrieved griefs. And so we build this armor, we build this complete protection and scrambling and grabbing control as a way because we don't just need to shut our hearts from the current grief. We don't want to even go near the pain of what we've, we've experienced before that we don't have the capacity to hold. So we can't come to acceptance and actually living in a full-bodied way uh, without grieving, because grieving is the way the mind learns to let go. It is the thing that kind of opens us up. And um, this is not my beautiful poetry, but Greg's, you know, he says, you know, grief is the heart's expression of impermanence. Well, beautiful. And we often say, you know, uh, uh, when your heart is open, it feels tender, and there's a sadness there, a little quality of sadness. I think Trimpa says the tender heart of sadness, you know. So meditation is the practice by which we learn to cultivate a body and mind that is still enough and open enough to be with what the, all the stuff that the mind does in response to uh, loss and permanence. <clears throat> so I was thinking, you know, how do we, <laughs> how do we operationalize this, you know? We can talk about it, then we get up off our cushions. How can we bring this in to our practice? 
<clears throat> so I came up with some ideas of some things, and these are just objects of meditation or th things that uh, we can sink into this, you know, whether we have a loved one dying or not. You know, if one is we can meditate, and this is great in January, right, at the end of the year, the beginning of the new year. We can meditate on losses associated with the passing of time. You know, and capitalism, it tells us, right, uh, you know, you can have it all, you can be it all, you can do it all, you know. Us baby boomers, I'm at the edge of the baby boomers, the baby boomers like, we can still have it all, we can still do it all. It's not true. We can't. You know, as, we, as time passes, there are things we actually can no longer do or no longer available, paths we can't take, you know. Um, and we have to settle into that and grieve that. Can we grieve what is past and cannot return? You know, we can begin to notice the suffering when we grasp onto any experience out of fear that it's going to be impermanent. You know, we know where it's going to be impermanent. We have this incredible experience. You know, we've just fallen in love and it's lovely. And then there's this little thing around that excitement that's a little anxious, like, oh, God, I, how am I going to keep this going? You know? <laughs> there's a Tibetan expression I just read, you know, if you're too excited about something, later you will have to cry. You know? It's beautiful. Can we notice when we engage in a belief? that we can prevent impermanence. This is a very clever one, you know. Um, if I'd only done this, or I'd only done that, or this wouldn't have happened, you know, as if we have this complete control, and, and, and it's a personal failing. You know, we'd rather make it a personal failing than to sink into the kind of helplessness of what we don't have control over, which is just about everything, you know. So uh, this reminds me of, uh, I think I've used this, talked about this quote before. Jung says, neurosis is the avoidance of legitimate suffering. So can you notice when you start to create this kind of lovely, compelling, juicy story about somebody's failing or your failing because you're trying to avoid the grief of the situation, the tenderness of the situation? Can we be courageous enough to look at and grieve how oppression and systemic violence kills the humanity in our country right now? Can we settle and look at, this is, you know, when I look at uh, all of these like global warming, you know, it's beyond the point where we can turn it around, you know, uh, can we even just sink into the fact that everything Everybody, this whole planet, might die because of what we've done. Who wants to sink into that? You know, talk about courageous. So Stephen Levine has offered many beautiful practice and rituals to help us face death. Uh, one example from his book, A Year to Live, I just want to give an example um, in honor of Stephen. He says, anticipate how you would feel if a significant person in your life dies tomorrow. What do you dread or fear most about his or her death? What, how would you behave differently today if you knew the person you most loved were to die tomorrow? I would say not even the person you love most, anybody that you meet, you know, anybody you're in relationship with. But what would you say to him or her? How would you 
act differently if this was the last time you were going to see somebody? What might she say back to you? So we can learn to respond to loss or death, not just with fear, not just with anxiety, but with a, a sober, deep, heartfelt recognition of the preciousness of everything, precisely because it's impermanent. So what I'm talking about is really a paradox, because if we can stay with the pain of our human response to loss, that actually allows us to enter into a more profound understanding of what we really are. So grief is the way through. Pain is the way through. And I can almost feel the heaviness in the room as I talk about it. But I'm sorry. That's, I, I really think that's the way. Uh, and what is the good news is, now I'm onto the good news, you know, that um, when we can go through the grieving, and this has been my experience in whatever way that I've experienced it, is the boundaries of self, just like Kisa Gotami, the boundaries of self, all those contractions that keep us feeling very far apart from one another start to melt. And then when we feel this begin to melt, we can start to let go or die to the attachment to things that are actually insecure, that makes us afraid and contract. And then we say, you know, uh, in religious circles, you know, we step into the mystery. <clears throat> Bernie Glassman's wife, uh, I don't know if any of you have seen this on Facebook. This is why I love Facebook. I get to see these things I'd never see. Her name is Eve Marco. And um, this is the courage of teachers, you know. It's just so beautiful. She wrote this incredible blog post um, teaching us a little bit about impermanence, and it's about her husband, Bernie. I'm going to read it to you. <clears throat> you can sit and retreat for decades. A stroke is a plunge that will annihilate everything you think you know. You're a baby. You were just born. God is showing you things you've never seen before, and all you have to do is look. Don't <laughs> shut your eyes. Don't tell her what to do. Don't say it's unfair. Just look. Look clearly at the face of someone you love and who is realizing slowly that right now he can't move his right side, he can't toilet himself, and that his terrific mind has changed. Look deeply into his eyes. Don't avert your gaze. God is showing you something. You have the great privilege of being deeply in the state of not knowing unless you mess it up unless you shut your ears, start Googling, argue with the terrific professionals taking care of him, drink some whiskey, eat some junk food, second guess the universe. In the middle of all of this, I know we're surrounded by a great beneficence, that someone has moved a curtain aside to show us more and more of the universe, and we can only be grateful for these glimpses. So at the beginning of the year, you know, most of us make some kind of lovely resolutions, you know, to, f to make us feel better and more secure and <laughs> about our lives. They just, uh, I just was reading, there was a survey of, they surveyed like 5,000 Americans, what are the top 
you know, five resolutions for the new year. And not surprising, you know, save more money, lose some weight, live a healthier lifestyle. God knows I could live a healthier lifestyle, get exercise more, spend more time with friends and family. You know, and I, I really don't think these are bad things to do. I, I think they're actually very useful, but the point that I wanted to make this morning, the reason I'm doing this at the beginning of the year is to, is, you know, I would like us to, to really dig a little deeper than a New Year's resolution and see if we can find a, an overall orientation for our lives that we can use as a guide. You know, just not something deeper. So the last one out of the five I didn't mention was the, the top resolution of all five was the resolution to enjoy life to the fullest. And, and I laughed because I thought, you know, if someone, the, all of those thousands of people who said that, if I said to them in response, you know, the way you're going to be able to live life to the fullest is to go into your pain, go into your grief, <laughs> feel all those things, you know, I think they might be like, uh, no, never mind. Because, <laughs> you know, for most of us, what that means, living a fuller life, is like living all on the good side, you know, the, the positive side, the happy side. And, you know, my experience, the practice, doesn't speak to it that way. That really, it's the awakened heart, the awakened heart that happens through the grief that actually paradoxically lets us feel less afraid, more free, more playful, more alive, more connected than we would be if we kept trying to grasp things that we can't grasp, that aren't graspable. And we get to trust life, you know, instead of something that is kind of an illusion. So I'm proposing for you all to ask the, yourselves this, you know, knowing I'm going to die, knowing everything around me is going to die, what is the deepest intention for my life? In Mahayana Buddhism, we talk about living a life of vow, and that's a way for us to connect what's most meaningful. And, um, and we need this strong counterpoint. We need this deep intention or vow because all the relentless messages of, our, you know, out of the media and in our own mind is telling us we can actually buy or create some way to security and happiness. And it's not true. So when Kisagatami awoke through her grief, what was her response when she felt better and calmer? Go and practice understand this more deeply. Uh, Wednesday night, we had a lovely little group, experiential group, and I, we did an experiment where I asked everybody to listen in their bodies and see what words arose when you proposed the question, when we proposed the question, what's the deepest intention for my life? And um, I wasn't surprised. But the responses that spontaneously arose from everybody were all connected somehow or another to an awakened heart, to bodhicitta. And I know for myself, um, for the moment, you know, having for the moment having been spared of facing death face, face to face, you know, um, that that 
that that has arisen in me, you know, that if I remember my sisters, my family, my teachers, all of the people that have died, it really cuts through all of the mishigash, you could say, <laughs> and go, goes right to the heart. Okay, I, I want to live, you know, not just for myself, because kind of that um, isn't quite juicy enough, you know, it isn't quite connected enough. Um, when I realize, you know, that it, my happiness is not apart from others, I, I want to kind of support others as well. So this is, you know, I might have to come up with a catchy phrase for my talk. You know, what's a resolution for a lifetime? I kind of didn't really like that so much, but um, I, I, I would say in a, you know, with some profundity, you know, that the resolution I would suggest for each of us is to deeply practice realizing impermanence. And to rest in the vow that arises with you from that realization. So it arises within you. It's not one anyone can impose on you. And I think the people in the group were very surprised, you know, that they, it didn't take much. It took about probably less than a minute to two minutes for folks to get past all of the, what, is, what should I think? What do I, what do I want to do? Ah and find that heartfelt response. So <clears throat> I'm going to finish the talk um, with a haiku from Okasan, who I mentioned in the beginning. It's nice to have her words be the last. To be of benefit to others, my heart's firm vow, cold winter morning. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.